Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we begin this episode, a warning. All of these tales are graphic, this one especially so. Javier Arango has known violence his whole life. Born in Colombia, he describes seeing bodies on the dirt streets where he began selling coconut treats when he was four years old. As a teenager, he followed his father to the U.S., but they landed in a gang-infested portion of Oakland, California, where kids flash their colors and their guns and vow to retaliate every killing, which means the violence never stops. He remembers one classmate's death in particular. I was like on the 10th grade and this girl had gotten killed and all of the other kids were really upset about it. He remembers the girl's brother swore he would shoot the guys who shot his sister. Javier was walking behind the kid when the brother said, Yeah, they, they shot my sister and if I see him around here, I'm going to shoot him too. Then the guy reached into his backpack. He had a, a Dora the Explorer backpack, a pink little Dora Explorer backpack. But from that backpack, he pulled out a big old 357 like this, revolver, and he started aiming at everybody like this. That's the life Javier says he's always known, one where everyone is armed, even children. It seems little wonder then that Javier was shot and today is paralyzed from a bullet to his spine. From the team that brought you accused in collaboration with The Trace, this is Aftermath, a podcast about gunshot survivors. I'm Amber Hunt. Colombia was mired in conflict for some 50 years, from the 1960s through 2016. The government there battled with crime syndicates and paramilitary groups, as well as guerrilla organizations like the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, also known as FARC, and the National Liberation Army. Javier was born there in 1989 to a poor family. His mother did anything she could to make money for the family, cleaning houses, cooking food for neighbors, really whatever it took. Javier's father, he says, had some side hustles that likely weren't legal. He remembers scars from machete slices on his dad's body. He remembers stints of visiting dad in jail on Sunday mornings. Javier, at four years old, started selling candy street side as a way to help his family. It wasn't embarrassing to me because I was trying to help my mother and my dad, but at the same time, I didn't understand like, the value of money or the value of me selling things out there in the street or me walking around all day. So at four years old, I knew my life was going to be different. That sense seemed to be solidified by this, one of his first memories. I got a sense of the bad things of Colombia at a young age because there, there was a conflict in Colombia back then. And sometimes, like, the guerrillas will kill the farmers, the farm people, 
One day I was out there and I saw my first like 10 bodies laying down on the floor because the parents would be like, don't go out really at nighttime. After 5 p.m. you had to be in your house. Well, that day I wasn't at my house. I was out there selling coconut treats and all of a sudden I just hear a lot of people running to the hospital and they were just like bringing bodies down from a truck and they were just like laying them down because they were already dead. And I was just like holding my, my basket and I was just looking and, and it was first time for me seeing a dead body like a four years old. At some point, Javier's father was shot in the face. He doesn't know the circumstances exactly, but his dad survived and after that applied for asylum in the U.S., citing the violence in Colombia. Over the decades, this hasn't been uncommon. Some 1.1 million Hispanics of Colombian origin live in the U.S. these days, according to a Pew Research Center analysis of census data. Many come here seeking respite from the violence at home. Javier's dad moved to California, leaving behind his children and their mother. Javier stayed behind. He has a few good memories from those years, going to school, playing soccer. Sometimes I would be in a hospital, my mom would be taking care of me, or like, I had some good child memories when I was like on the sixth and seventh grade. When I was a little kid in Colombia, they had me in like in a little soccer team, and I enjoyed it a lot. Also, when my dad came over here, he sent me money to buy a bicycle, so that was a good thing too. But the good memories are swallowed by the violent ones, like this one from the sixth or seventh grade. They make houses of blocks over there, like bricks. And this guy was stealing the bricks out of the factory. And the factory was on the way to our house. I don't know who, who killed them, but one of my friends was like, come on, let's go and see it. Let's go and see what happened. And this guy was like in the pile of bricks laying down with his face pushed in. The story that circulated was that the man had been caught stealing bricks from the construction site. There was no arrest, no trial. But they kill him a very horrible way, like they stone him, basically. With the bricks? With the bricks that he was stealing. Javier said the man's body was left on the street as a warning to other thieves. So from there, I learned, like, you know, it's not a good thing to be stealing things and you could end up dead. When Javier was starting the eighth grade, he decided he wanted to join his dad. He was tired of the poverty, tired of seeing bodies. He says his dad was doing legal work in the U.S., cleaning boats, driving trucks, repairing roofs. Javier figured that if he came here, he could go to school, be a kid. He applied for asylum, got temporary status at first, and then permanent, he says. He moved in with his dad, stepmother, and baby half-sister. When he arrived, his dad warned him that they hadn't left the violence behind. The best home they could afford was in Oakland, in a neighborhood rife with gangs. He just told me, he's like, look, you cannot wear blue or you cannot wear red because those are the colors of the gangs over here. So I don't want you wearing no blue shirts or I don't want you wearing no red shirts. So I follow his, his directions but I already knew in the schools who was gangbanging, who was not gangbanging, and who were the staff. I already knew, and who was the good people, who was the bad people. 
I'm assuming he told you not to wear those colors because he didn't want you in a gang. Exactly. Javier says he tried to be careful, but he still got himself in trouble. He hung out with older kids who drank and partied. He was regularly mistaken for a gang member, despite not actually belonging to one. He was a young brown boy speaking spotty English in a poor neighborhood, hanging out with rough friends. Some kids from the, from here, they knew that I wasn't from here, so they were after me because they thought I was a gang member from another city. So, like, I already had to be taking care of my back and learning how to fight, things like that. He was about 16 when his dad moved back to Colombia. Javier wanted to finish high school in the U.S., so he stayed with his half-sister and stepmother. He had just started his senior year of high school when he took his girlfriend to a school dance in December 2006. He borrowed a black shirt and bought a new red tie for the occasion. I had some dressing pants and I borrowed some dressing shoes. And I was looking nice. He stayed about two hours and then he got bored. He wanted to party with his friends. A buddy named Tony picked him up over his girlfriend's objections and the friends went clubbing. Javier was just 17, but hanging around the older kids, he had no trouble finding places that would serve him booze. Around 2 a.m., the group of guys got in a fight and were kicked out of a bar. Now, my other friend Santos, he's driving the car, and he everybody looked up to him because he's like the one that had the most money. And everybody liked his truck, things like that. Like He had nice shoes every weekend. He had like brand new tattoos like all the time. So everybody liked that. I liked it. You know, I kind of wanted to be with like him or like or like be next to him and help him or anything that he wanted to, you know. So um, he's coming back and I want to be right there on the, next to him so I could take care of him more because he was coming drunk and he was already like driving like this, you know. So one way or other, we made it to Oakland, to the neighborhood. So we stopped in front of his house and there was a light pole and we stopped the truck right in front of the light pole. At some point, a car pulled up next to them. When we saw those cars pull next to us, we already knew it was up to no good because they had red bandanas covering their faces. Now, everybody started putting out guns and then they went like this. This is a gang sign for the Norteño gang right here in, in, in Northern California. They went like this. So they expect you either to go like this or to bang another, another gang sign. I didn't do nothing. I just I, like, stayed looking at them. I was a little like in shock because I saw all of the guns that they had. And I said, this is going to hurt. This is going to hurt. Javier says he saw a flash and realized they were shooting. Pa, 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 like all of those guns started going off. And I was on the side that I was receiving all of the bullets. I, it was Santos, me, three friends in the back, and then my friend Tony all the way on the trunk of the truck. So we're receiving all of the bullets. All of the windows are getting shattered. They wouldn't stop shooting. Like they were like, like, I think they actually like reloaded and started shooting more, 
but it was like ongoing like bullets and like loud bangs boom boom bam, 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 hitting the windows hitting the car hitting the metal he tried to cover his head between his knees but they wouldn't stop shooting they would keep going it was like a long drive-by shooting the shots kept flying javier tried to see if he could open a door but it wouldn't budge but when the car got hit, the alarm system made the doors locked so nobody could get out. So we getting shot at, and I'm trying, to, I'm trying to see if I could open the door. He says he thought that if he stayed there, he was going to get killed, but he couldn't get out of the car. When I came up a little bit and I tried to reach over like this to try to open his door, that's when I fell. I fell like a high bar coming through my body. And I saw, I remember that I saw this, this, this dude with a shotgun. And I just said, this motherfucker cut me in half. That's what I said, it's like, he cut me in half. And they were still shooting. They were still shooting. Boom, boom, boom. And I just saw like all of the windows breaking. And I saw like smoke. And all of a sudden, I just hear, they, they left. For me, it was just like me. I was just like this, laying right there on the seat. And I started losing my breath. And I was like, oh, man, I'm, I'm going to die. My dad is going to be really upset of this because, you know, he warned me so much about this shit. And look the situation that I'm in right now. I'm cut in half. That's how I felt because I grabbed my legs and I, I didn't have no balance. I fell forward. And then that's why I started choking more on my blood. My blood started coming out of my mouth and I started passing out. He remembers seeing a light. He started to follow it, but his friend Tony slapped him in the face and told him to wake up. No, Javier said. Uh, let me go to sleep. Tony wouldn't let him. He kept him alert until the ambulance came. The bullet went through Javier's spine, paralyzing him from the waist down. For years, that bullet stayed in his body, literally pressing against the skin around his rib cage. The ride from the scene to the hospital was agony, he says. That was the worst ride ever in my life. Javier learned that he had been mistaken for a member of the Border Brothers, an East Oakland gang that wore all black. The assumption was maybe understandable. He and the other guys in the SUV were near Border Brothers turf, and that gang had a beef with the Norteños, another gang. The Norteños wore red. Javier had worn a black shirt and red tie to the dance, but he'd taken off the tie and was wearing only black with his friends. When the Norteño's members in the car next to him flashed a sign that he didn't flash back, they opened fire. Javier wasn't the only one hit. A friend in the back seat was shot three times in the stomach. One bullet, the doctor said, almost hit his heart. He had his cell phone on his pocket shirt. That saved him from getting killed. Javier vacillated, at one moment praying for death because the pain was unbearable. The next moment, he begged the doctor to keep him alive. Look, doctor, just don't let me die, okay? I remember that I told him that. And he said, don't worry, you're going to live. His father was back in Colombia, and so was his mom. Javier felt lonely as he drifted into sleep. 
When he opened his eyes, his stepmother stood over him. So from there, I developed a real love for, for that lady because she was the one of the only people right there because all of my family was back in Colombia. She cried over him. She worried about him. She acted like a mother. For some people, this might seem like it should have been a turning point for a young man who had been surrounded his whole life by violence. A bullet through the spine might be eye-opening, right? For Javier, his life did change that moment, but not in the way you might think. In the hospital, he had to learn how to live without using his legs. And then from there, they showed me how to shower. They showed me how to put on my shoes, how to take care of my skin. They showed me how to uh, go to rehab and the places that I needed to go to rehab. At one point, they said, okay, we cannot teach you any more things. We need you to go home. How long were you there? Uh, I got shot in December, and I was out of there by the beginning of February. And I was like, where are you guys going to send me? It's like, you going home? It's like, going back to Colombia? No. Home where? Back to the hood? Back to where I got shot at? You're going back to the heart of East Oakland, where motherfuckers get killed all the time. And you're going to be on a wheelchair. So take care of yourself. That's what the doctor told me. I had to accept it. That was my reality. I accepted it. I was like, that's very true. Thank you for telling me those words. I, I'd rather have people to tell me the truth than to be bullshitting me around. He told me straight up what was going to happen. He's like, you're going to go back to the hood, take care of yourself, because now you're, gonna, you're not going to be able to run. You're going to be on a wheelchair. So from there, I knew that I had to arm myself, you know, carry a pistol with me, and, you know, be aware of my surroundings. He considered alternatives. One night before he was discharged, he rolled himself to the elevator and tried to go to the roof of the five-story hospital. Because I was like, I don't want to live like this. I want to throw myself down and end it. I don't want to live like this. I don't want to feel lonely. And I was, like, trying to, like, kill myself at that point. But I couldn't open the door. The door was locked. After that, he was put on 24-hour suicide watch for a few days. The urge to die subsided. Then came a powerful urge to live. He hadn't belonged to a gang before he was shot, he says. But afterward... That's where I started gangbanging. I needed one way or other to protect myself. I needed one way or other to, to survive. Javier joined the gang for protection, but that's not the only reason. He was angry. He was in a wheelchair, and he wanted revenge on the people who put him there. Joining the gang that the guys who shot him had been targeting seemed like an obvious choice. They had a common enemy. He knew that joining a gang would put his own life in jeopardy, but not joining one hadn't seemed to help, so he figured, why not? And besides, his view on life and mortality had been permanently skewed by what he had seen as a child. Violence and death had been at every turn. When he talks, you can hear this. Like when he says how excited he was when he finally turned 21. I was glad when I made it to 20, 21. I was super happy. 
I was like, damn, I never thought I was going to make it to 21. Never, ever, ever, ever thought I was, I was so happy. I was like, but then I realized that life doesn't have to end in your teen years or your like 20 years. Like you're supposed to end your life when you're like an older dude, uh, older, like in your 50s or your 60s. My husband's grandmother died in between my interview with Javier and writing this episode. She was 90. I mention this because, in Javier's world, people don't live that long. 50s or 60s makes you an old dude. After he joined the gang, his life got even more violent than it had been before. He and his friends not only carried guns, but they sold them. His description is like a warped episode of Flea Market Flip. Or sometimes when there would be like a pistol for sale and then you would like buy it really cheap, like $200 or $150, and then you would sell it for like 800 That would be like the best feeling ever. He was routinely shot at while in the gang. In fact, he says someone tried to kill him every year he wore his colors, starting at age 17. I'm a, right now I'm 29 and I'm grateful and I'm alive and I thank God every day for that. Because like I said, it's eight attempt. I counted all them attempts they try to kill me. And it's been like eight. So 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. That's when I started, stopped banging, yeah. Like I said, mad doesn't lie. Neither does the body count. When Javier talks about his life in a gang, he floats one name after another. Gerald, Fernando, Antonio, Jermaine. These are all names of friends who have died. He has memorial t-shirts for five such friends, all young men who died in their late teens and early 20s. Fernando, he died in 2000 and, and oh, he died 2008 too, the same year okay. that Gerald passed away. Same year, that's why I told you it's like two, two deaths in the same month, in the same year. Sometimes he wasn't there for the deaths, but they affected him nonetheless, and he'd attend the funerals. He had a habit of wiping his tears on the casket as a sign of respect. He lit candles and downed drinks. At one funeral, he took part in a shootout. The dead friend's mother won't speak to him to this day because of it. Other deaths he saw firsthand, like the friend's cousin who was shot and killed in front of Javier and his father, who was visiting from Colombia. One of Javier's friends was celebrating a birthday, and the cousin came to the party wearing a red hat. And that's not allowed in the neighborhood where I used to live at, because they wear like a lot of black color. That's the color for the gang right there. I'm saying bye to my friend to go inside my house and to shower and to dress up to get the night, you know, started like, I don't know, probably had some drinks, whatever, and celebrate that my friend was right there and it was like one of their birthdays. And then I say bye to them. I'm going inside my house. All of a sudden a car pulls up and then some people get off the car and they start shooting. I'm my friend Anthony and his two cousins. And we seen all of this stuff. We saw it, we saw it. My daddy's trying to pull me inside the house real fast. And then it wasn't fast enough because we saw the guy firing and then boom, 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 boom. He let all of the bullets go. And then he shot the other guy on his head. 
and in his back. And then my friend Anthony, he didn't get shot, but I saw him like coming out the house screaming and, and crying. No, ah, the car leaves. And then, and then I try to ask my dad, it's like, what happened? Go and see what happened. So my dad comes out the house and then they see the guy laying down on the ground with his head all blown out. He had got shot in his head. And, and then my dad was like, they killed your friend. I'm like, damn. Javier has a lot of stories like this one about the losses he endured at the hands of others. And it's clear they weigh heavy on him. He joined the gang for a sense of family, after all, and he talks about these fallen friends as though they're brothers. He tried to protect himself. He has a bulletproof vest, which he shows us. I used to wear this all December. It's blue with Velcro, and he can still pull it on quickly. The muscle memory remains. That was one of his defensive moves, but make no mistake, he was on the offense plenty too. I just picked up more drugs and, 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 and started selling more, more stuff out there in the street, also getting drunk. And that was like the day-to-day life, getting drunk, selling drugs, and from time to time, you know, robbing and taking people to go rob things. Like I used to be the driver, like I could still drive. I used my hands to drive. So I used to be more like the, the setup guy. Set up everything and I just have my, you could say goons, and come and do whatever you had to do in order for us to get some money. It could be like home invasions or like robbing all the people out there on the streets, robbing cars, making jingle keys, the ones that you make to steal cars, things like that. I ask if he's ever shot anyone. He quickly answers. I heard people scream before. I heard people scream before, you know, like I shot and I heard, ah, ah, running away. And it could be those moments that I was living back then that I actually enjoyed that feeling. But, you know, you just sometimes had to make those statements to people. And yeah, it was probably because I was trying to get revenge out of anything or, or, or just me like enjoying my bad side. And yeah, I, I, it's, it's real simple for me. I'll put you an example. He shifts in his seat as though he's behind a wheel driving a car. And then he reaches onto his couch and grabs a black remote control for his TV. He positions it in his hands like it's a gun which he points out an imaginary window over his left shoulder. Let's say this is the pistol right here. Lock and load it. I'm driving. I got one hand on the steering wheel and I use a stick to drive. Push the gas and push the brake, right? You just stop in front of somebody. That's not that hard to do. Now, if I wanted to get aim, I already knew my position. That's it. Real easy. And then that's when I said that I heard people scream before. You know? Were these random people? Were they people you intended to? People that I intended to. People that had 
hurt me, people that will find out that, that they were trying to plot things on me and my friends. So it was for us to go and get them first before they got to us. Javier's eyes are dark and focused as he speaks. Until this moment, he's talked a lot about what he's seen. Now he gave us a glimpse into what he's done. During Javier's time wearing black, a TV crew arrived. In front of Javier's house on 94th Avenue, a rival gang has opened fire. Javier was interviewed for the 2009 program called The Gang Wars, Oakland 2. His inclusion is chilling. He's shown counting bullets marring the side of his modified van after a late-night shootout. He's shown vowing revenge against whoever killed his friend Gerald, nicknamed Snoopy. Javier says he offered to help the filmmakers when he learned they wanted to uncover why so many people die in Oakland streets. He knew Oakland streets as well as anyone, he figured, so he raised his hand. But, he says... Things became twisted. It was more like an informational thing, but they just portrayed me as a gang member from Oakland. And that thing just went viral, and everybody in Oakland knows that the guy in the wheelchair used to be in a gang. Um, so when I'm out there, like in a restaurant or out there in the street, somebody recognizes me. People who place him say hello. Some even seem impressed. But they also say things like, I would have thought you would have been killed already. Or I would have thought like you would not be here, you would be in jail. How come you're not in jail? I'm not in jail, I'm right here in front of your face. After Gang Wars aired, he says, Life, life was different. When friend told him the documentary made him look bad, he said, You're not famous, you're infamous. It's like, can you tell me the definition of that word? It's like, infamous is when you have, when you are famous, but you have bad fame. You have bad fame, Javier. You came in a TV show, game banging and, and saying you from here, you from there. And you see the other gang, gang members that came on that show, they all came with their faces covered and stuff. And I was like, but I was actually trying to do some good for my, from, for my uh, city, but you came out to be infamous. So I'm like, all right, well, I accepted it. Just like I accept the fact that I could get killed anytime, I accept the fact that I'm infamous. The documentary started to make Javier think about another path, but he didn't change course right away. He lost one friend named Jermaine who had run with Javier's crew and treated him like family. Jermaine Tarver pushed Javier around in his wheelchair and stayed with him when he was down. Tarver didn't die at the hands of a rival gang, but he was still killed by a gun. He had fired one on the 4th of July into the air, knocking down a power line. According to police, the 12,000-volt live wire fell on top of Jermaine, killing him. His 23-year-old half-brother tried to help by grabbing the wire. He survived the shock. When Javier says he buried Tarver, he means literally. He got confused at the funeral because everyone was leaving, but the casket still hadn't been lowered. So Javier grabbed handfuls of dirt to pile on top of the box. And then I remember I was wearing white, 
and then I came wearing like all brown because of all of the dirt that I was helping bury in top of it. The last straw, he says, was the death of his friend Antonio, who was shot in front of his own house. When it was time to bury him, his mother wouldn't let the casket get lowered to the ground. She actually like tried to throw herself in the hole with him. And for that, that, that to me was very shocking. I put myself in the place of my friend and I put my mother in the place of, of my friend's mother. And I was like, I don't want to never want to see my mother go through this stuff. I don't ever want to see my mother crying on top of, of my grave. So I'm going to quit this shit right here, right now. And I gave my pistol to the pastor. And I was like, I'm done with this shit. And then he said, good, because I don't want to be the one to come and, and bury you and give you the last blessing. So that was it, he says. He handed the pastor his pistol and he quit. Not that it was easy. He was infamous, after all, and convincing people that he wanted to change his ways was tough. Lots of agencies shut the door in his face. The Catholic Charities of the East Bay agreed to help. Javier says that once they opened the door for him... I felt, for once, I felt at peace. I felt at peace. I felt like nobody was chasing after me. I felt like the air was, was smelling better. I was like, I don't have to be taking care of myself over here. I don't have to be looking who is outside, who's after me, who's behind me. No, I'm over here at peace. And I liked it. I didn't want to leave that place. His mentor, Ricardo Pena, says he watched a new Javier emerge. I'm going to tell you one thing about Javier. One thing about Javier, Javier is a remarkable man. Like I told him, depending on what side of the fence you're going to be on, you're going to be great either way. If you're on the street, you're going to be one of the best hustlers out there because you're in a wheelchair and you're running dudes from every part of East Oakland, and they listen to you. Now, if you take that positively, which he has done, he, he just has this effect. But, my, but the most important thing to me and Javier have been working together is something we call Holy Spirit therapy. It's because of our faith. And we've seen it. We've seen it when we put our faith in the Lord. It, it, things happen, and we see these, these miracles occur. So Javier won't tell you that because he doesn't know how, you know, he'll talk to me about it. And we, we get down with it and we talk to the boys about it in the groups and everywhere else and to the families. But people outside of that, we don't really bulge too much. He doesn't. I don't. I don't have no problem. You know, I carry my faith on my sleeve. <laughs> but he's a, man of, he's a man of faith. That's what I want to tell you. He's just a man of faith. And so he's always is positive. He always believes if there's hardship, there must be a lesson in it. So that's what makes him remarkable, because most people stress over the littlest things. Okay. He don't. Yeah, I just have to say that. I love right. him, man. <laughs> I think I spoke over you. What'd you say? I said, I love the man. <laughs> I love him here. I just wanted to make you say it twice. So. <laughs> no, his mom and dad always called me up and they say, damn, dude, you, you, you're, like his, you're like our father over there, because, you know, his father... Obviously, he's in Colombia. His mom's there too. So I said, "No, over here, I am. I'm, I'm overlooking. I'm, I got my wings around him. I keep my eyes on him." So mom, gracias a Dios, he told us something. So that's all I gotta say. <laughs> Until this point, he'd had two families: his real one and the gang. 
both of which had showed him how to be a person of bad. With the help of his mentor and the Catholic Charities, he felt like he was learning how to be a person of good. I feel very grateful, very thankful. I feel very lucky to have found the people that I have found after I wanted to quit game banging and I wanted to quit that life. And, you know, for them actually opening the door for me in order for me to change my life. Can you walk me through that? Because that's a process that somebody who hasn't been in a gang would know about. Can, can you just hand a pastor a pistol and be like, I'm out and it be over? For me, that's the way to, to, to be at peace with God, basically. In order for me to stop doing bad things, I need to go with somebody that is doing good and tell them, look, I'm truly trying to quit. This pistol is worth money. I could go ahead and sell it, you know, get some money out of it. But no, this is my good way of doing good things and really showing you that I won't be at a funeral anymore banging or saying that I claim this color anymore. No, look, here it is. I quit. I don't want nothing to deal with that anymore. And that's, I think that's what it was going through my head at those moments. And is that a final thing or is it, does it take any time to actually pull away from? It takes time for you to pull away from a gang lifestyle because you always going to have friends that, that gang bang for the rest of your life until they die. He does still have those friends, he says. Some call him from prison. Some he runs into on the streets. But no one has tried to pull him back in, he says. And they largely respect that he doesn't want to be around their chaos or their guns. Between the agency and Pena, Javier got work counseling high school students. He's on hand several days a week at three different schools to work with kids in trouble, kids who remind him of a younger version of himself. He helps them with whatever they ask of him, including homework, but his most reliable role is conflict mediator. He works to help kids who have beefs with each other settle their differences without coming to blows or worse. Javier says he's finally done with guns. He lost a lot of friends to gunfire, and each time he thinks... His life was cut short because of a fucking gun. I'm on this wheelchair because of a gun, you know? So every time I see a gun, it's a reminder. Every time I see a bullet, it's a reminder. But eliminating guns doesn't eliminate the trauma. The reminders are constant, and not just because of the wheelchair. Sometimes his legs shake involuntarily, like he's having a seizure in the lower half of his body. This happens a couple of times while we're talking. And he tries to straighten his leg and hold it to stop. Sometimes it takes a few minutes to subside. A few years ago, the bullet lodged into his spine worked its way out through his skin. He woke up in a puddle of pus and blood and had to go to the hospital to have the bullet removed by a doctor. And he grabbed some pliers-looking thing. He just pulled it out and he showed it to me. When I looked at it, I'm like, damn, that's the, that's the piece of metal that got me into this wheelchair. That's the piece of metal that changed my life. That's the piece of metal that could have got me killed. He asked to keep it, but the doctor said no. The repercussions, though, are more than physical. 
Like the others we've interviewed for this project, Javier has been diagnosed with PTSD. And in the aftermath, he deals with it daily. It takes a long time because after you quit the, the street life, there's things that get stuck with you. The way you're living, or like PTSD, like trauma, after seeing so much. I don't like when, when, when I suffer from trauma because it could be a loud car passing by and I would jump. Or like every car that passes in front of my house, I, I have to look at it. See who is driving and who is the passenger, make sure they're not looking at me. That's part of my trauma. When I hear a muffler of a car like loud, a motorcycle, I get scared and I get anxious. Before I fall asleep, like sometimes I cry and I give thanks for me to being alive, but I feel like that's part of my trauma also. When, when I'm here at my house and I hear a loud noise, maybe coming from upstairs, it scares me and I hate it. And I cuss, I like, shit, motherfucker, what the fucking noise that they're making over there. And that's just because I get, I get angry and I get, I, I, when I hear a loud noise, I just be afraid sometimes. Every time I see a gun, it's a reminder. Every time I see a bullet, it's a reminder. That was when I was like, man, I really don't want to see no more guns around me ever again. Because my other friend, like, he was like, I believe he was like 19 years old very young and, you know, his life was cut short because of a fucking gun. I'm on this wheelchair because of a gun. Next time on Aftermath. The only thought that kept going through my mind was this must be some kind of practice because we'd just been in our safety committee meeting talking about what we were gonna do if someone came in with a gun. I was like, oh, this is this is this must be a practice scenario. Like, I feel like this is a training scenario. But then I was like, no, this is this is real. This is a real person with a gun in my face. Aftermath is the result of a partnership between the Cincinnati Enquirer, part of the USA Today Network, and The Trace. It's reported by Amber Hunt and Elizabeth Van Brocklin, edited by Amy Wilson, and produced by Phil Didion and Amanda Rossman. Music is by Andrew Higley. Intern Brianna Rice assisted. Some episodes include additional sound courtesy of awesome local journalists. For full clip credits, go to our website. The podcast was supported in part by a fellowship from the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia Journalism School. For videos, photos, and more, go to aftermathpod.com. You can follow us on Twitter at AftermathPod or find us on Facebook. <laughs>